Omnibus is a production of iHeartRadio. Receiving this message. We are Ken Jennings and John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is The Omnibus. You have accessed entry 153.JG0506, certificate number 31424, Breezewood, Pennsylvania. Would you describe yourself as a road tripper? I love a good road trip. And I am, I have been, I want to say deposited in, but I have created a family of non-road trippers hmm. who just think for some reason that planes are quicker. Weird. I don't know where they got this idea. Lame. It's, you, it's mostly generational. You grew up in Korea for some portion of your childhood. Yeah, it's a long road trip. Uh, it is. Did you guys drive around Korea, uh, sightseeing and visiting things when you were a kid? Yeah, but I would say most of my road trip memories are from coming back to the States in the summer. I mean, we lived in Seoul, a huge city, and we're, you know, public transport, bus and taxi kids for a lot of the time. But right. coming back to the States in the summer, you know, we might drive down to my dad's folks in Oregon or drive down to Disneyland or so lots of long I-5 vacations. We were not like a national park slash camping family, mm -hmm. but we were definitely kids bouncing around in the back of a station wagon. Family. You'd load up the family truckster and forget grandma's dog. On top of the car. <laughs> Tied to the back. Grandma's on top of the car. Uh, we, that's, it's generational. I feel like there's not a lot of people younger than us who would find that pleasurable. Road tripping. Yeah. I mean, it's a, boy, there's a whole type of person that just wants to get in their car and drive. And I, I think that does, I think that the idea yeah, of like. They're called unhappily married. <laughs> I think the, the generational thing is like going to motels and going to Yosemite. But like, I, I meet young people all the time that have that same wanderlust and feeling of kind of completeness in their car, right? They, they get in their car and they are at home and unassailable. And the great thing about a road trip is you just have to get out to get gas in the car, right? I mean, the rest of the time you're semi-autonomous. That, semi that makes me happy. I guess I would picture like a young person who's like, I've got wonderlust, so I'm flying to Amsterdam or something. Yeah, know? no. And that's, that's not the same. I think the American love affair with cars is, boy, it, it's flourishing. We just don't have the same maybe mythos of like get in your big Buick and drive across the country or get in your Volkswagen bus. That's maybe not being celebrated, but I know a lot of millenniums and younger even who, um, it's cause the cars aren't as cool, I guess. Yeah. There, there's that. You said mythos. 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 Is that how we're going to say it? Mythos. How do you want to say it? Mythos. I would say mythos. Mythos. Is Balky from mythos? Mythos. Yeah, Mythos. The, it's the, the Isle of Mythos? It's the lost lost continent of Atlantis. <laughs> mythos sank many centuries ago. I feel like we should maybe give a trigger warning to the people of the future whose atmosphere we totally killed with our century of fossil fuels. Well, but we should apologize for our American love of the automobile and wide open spaces. We should feel bad about it. Don't you agree, John? It, it, definitely, <laughs> <laughs> it definitely does not make sense when you look at it on the face of it, that the internal combustion engine 
should be employed to drive basically living room sized vehicles back and forth across <laughs> America with one passenger. You know, the, just the pilot. It's okay if you've got kids, right? If there's actually a living room full of kids who are, um, you know, looking for letters in license plates yeah. or playing I Spy or, again, those little games where you press the buttons and squirt the water ball through the water hoop. If you've got 15 miners who are on their way to the job site every morning, you deserve a 15-passenger van. My kids were complaining. Uh, I think we're going to go down and see my wife's folks in uh, Salt Lake City over the spring break. And I love that drive. Yeah, that's and, a nice drive. And we'll always, I mean. You go down through Oregon or do you go over through Idaho? No, it's actually nicer if you go over through, wait. So I'm not sure which way you're talking about. Well, so there's Down that, to Umatilla, Oregon. Tri-Cities, Umatilla, yeah, then yeah, a little yeah. corner of Oregon. Yeah, that's nice. Corner of Idaho. Over through Basque country. It is very Basque country. I mean, a lot of, if that's, if you do that drive in the summer, it's a lot of brown Idaho, but you can go like 85, so. But there's it, the. It blurs as you go by it. There's the kind of I-90. And then down route, I, I mean, I don't recommend that. It's much prettier if you want, I mean, it takes much longer, but if you kind of go Coeur d'Alene, you know, as if you're going to Yellowstone or something yeah. and then cut down. Well, you can cut, you can drive that Idaho. It's not on the interstate, but you drive just down the spine of Idaho on the Moscow side and you go down through Lewiston and- The Bitterroot Mountains? Yeah, that's so wonderful there. And I, so I love this drive and I, I find that a great pleasure. And uh, the kids are complaining because we're not just flying and doing it in 90 minutes. Well, they're looking at their iPads anyway, right? That's the thing about road trips now is I have definitely, we drove from the Oregon coast home. I think it was, you know, seven or eight hour drive. And the kids kind of, my son looked up from Animal Crossing or whatever he was playing when we got home and it's like, we're here already. Yeah. Like it was terrifying. Eight hours had just gone by like a <laughs> blink to him on his Soma drip. Uh, but, you know, and my, I think my daughter tried to complained about driving on ecological grounds, you know, and, uh, and I said, I don't know, actually know if the carbon footprint is, you know, flying, if you're flying four people, the car might be better, actually. Yeah. Well, you, and you'd have a hybrid car. Yeah, we'd probably take the minivan, though. Sure, like, uh, sure, sure. We have a minivan where each of the kids gets a row. We, we have the oh. minivan that you have for six kids, but we only have two kids, mm -hmm. which is great because then they don't punch each other as much. <laughs> You know, what? very early on in the development of the car, the electric car was uh, was already a viable technology. Yeah, and they had was, steam cars, electric cars. Yeah, and they were just beat down by the gas car people. The gas car, um, probably the gasoline industry people. Well, and more than know, the hobbyists. All of them, you know, all of the cabal. The whole Illuminati. The whole, ki the whole kitten cabal. <laughs> but, uh, but now that we're entering, uh, we're at the dawn of the electric car age. Uh, now it, I think cars will stop being so polluting and we'll just have to face the fact that electricity production is still polluting. Right. So but as get our act together, yeah. nuclear or hydro wise. Right. As time goes on, I think we'll solve that problem uh, pretty quickly and we'll be into a new era where you can more or less travel without filling the air with pollutants. I mean, it, it was probably, you know, honestly, it's a daily 20 mile commute by every American from the suburbs to the city. That's what ruined everything. Yeah. And that will be all not electric a, in not a yearly road trip. 15 years. You sure. Know, there won't be a gas car except in the hands of enthusiasts. But we've been living and you and your and my life have overlapped Sort of uh, the second half of what is a century of focus on the automobile as the absolutely the tentpole means of transportation, one that it's, that its status, its freedom, it replaced the train, it replaced most public transit because it's freedom. You know, car, a car, car, a car goes wherever, and you can decide at every moment. Turn left, turn I'm, right. What if we go here? What if we crash into this phone pole? Those mountains look pretty. What if I slam on my brakes right now? Not options in a train. The passengers do not control the brakes of a train for some reason. Two oh. days ago, I was driving on the freeway here and a fire truck was ahead of me, you know, kind of on the freeway. Not sure exactly what it, where it was headed. It was all by itself. It wasn't a convoy. Did it have lights and sirens? It had lights and sirens. It was going. And people were pulling over to the right to get out of its way, as you do. I was a quarter mile behind it. And so kind of drafting off of <laughs> right. it, you know, like I was just going 
75 in the, that's in nice. the fast lane. When somebody loses their house, but you can get there. Yeah, you're just faster. sort of, you know, I wasn't like right on his tail, but kind of drafting off. And then all of a sudden, a person in front of me in the carpool lane, I mean, not, they didn't suddenly do something. I came up on them very fast because their, somehow their reaction to a fire truck was to put on their flashers and slow to 15 miles an hour. In the same in, lane as the fire truck? No. Just, Next to it. No, not even. Like oh. three lanes over <laughs> in the carpool lane. And so I'm going, you know, a, a reasonable 75 miles an hour and just about went right into this guy's trunk. And, you know, had to lock up the brakes. So you could, yeah, driving normal, okay. Or yeah. stopping, okay. But you don't want to split the difference. No, you don't split the difference. It's like those people who are on the moving walkways at the airport and they think, well, it says stand right, walk left. So if I'm going to walk very slowly, I'll just be right in the middle <laughs> and cover my bases. And in this case, that person who did not understand how to deal with fire trucks, it was one more reason why I feel like autonomous cars, at least within cities, are the future. Because I do not want that person making independent decisions about how to pilot their vehicle. We have the, almost have the technology and... Cars are now smarter than him. Yeah, 100% he should not have a driver's license. <laughs> Maybe cars aren't smarter than me, but they're definitely smarter than that guy. But, uh, you know, the car industry, the car universe, it was, it began. The, car, the cars universe? The, the, the cars. From the cars movies? No, not that universe. Oh, okay. You know, I've never seen a cars movie. Oh, really? No, I feel like the anthropomorphizing of cars is something I didn't want. It creeped me out from the very beginning. They put the eyes on the windshield instead of the headlights, which is kind of a new innovation. It's super weird. I don't like, I guess I don't like the animation. And so I never wanted to see the movie. It's for little boys who want to imagine vroom vroom cars having adventures without the obnoxious people taking up space. Because there's no people unless... Like, you don't see what's in the cars. Yeah, awful, awful, awful. Think about do that. Do they have organs? No, they're real people inside who are just, like, held prisoner inside the belly of these monsters. What do they eat or where do they pee? The whole civilization is based around cars they, in, in the cars of the universe. I know, they pull in to drive through Kentucky Fried Chickens and some food is shoveled into the briefly open wind, wind uh, side wind. What am I trying to say? Window. This is headcanon. This never happens in the movies. <laughs> There's no fast food at all. The only things that are grown are uh, corn for biodiesel in the cars world. Sorry, that was probably a, a side trip. You want to talk about our car-based universe, not the Pixar car-based universe. Yeah, our car-based universe, you know, it came up out of a what was already a pre-existing wagon-based transportation culture. Do you think there were guys out there on weekends waxing their Conestoga wagons <laughs> like, hey, baby? Well, for sure. You've been to the state fair. There's still guys waxing their Conestoga wagons. Were, would there be sexy pioneer women that would kind of drape themselves over your Conestoga wagon to car wash it? You mean at your log cabin, you'd have a poster over the bed of like a, <laughs> like a, like a gal in a bonnet leaning across the hood of a... <laughs> they would have a little thing hanging from the back, but it's Calvin and Hobbes peeing on Pancho Villa. <laughs> Or like a little a little set of family figures, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. except the dad in a big wide brim. Except the hat. last three kids are gravestones. <laughs> <laughs> I reached for my bell and couldn't find it. There it is. Uh, well, anyway, so you know the the like there were toll roads, there were pikes. You know, people were traveling between Boston and New York on fairly well maintained roads before the advent of the car. Yeah. But uh, once the car came around, it was all, it also kind of coincided with the opening of the West and the railroads. And, you know, the, this was a century of movement in the United States and the car just really capped it. The, the gasoline engine and the rubber tires and all these innovations that made automobiles so appealing and so, and, you know, they moved much faster, but they required an infrastructure you know, just as you had roadhouses where your horse could be watered and, and fed and bedded down for the night, all of a sudden with the gas cars, you needed, well, gas stations. Service stations. And you needed this, a, a whole rubber industry, which we've discussed before on the program. Because these early guys were fixing, repairing a tire every hour. Right. <laughs> and you needed gasoline, which up until that point, you know, it wasn't that much earlier that we were still using whale oil to light lamps. And now we needed like gasoline to fuel these vehicles. And this was the rise of the Ohio 
uh, you know, those early discoveries of gasoline, or right. of, I'm sorry, of oil. Pennsylvania gas rush. And, right. Uh, and that was, and it, you know, that was the story of Oklahoma and Texas. That's uh, why there's still Quaker state oil. Pennsylvania used to be oil country. Yeah. And, and the Amish were like sheiks. <laughs> Pennsylvania and Ohio, right? Where the yeah. big, where the big oil. And all, so all of this was happening kind of all at the same time and big, big fortunes were being made. But one of the inhibitors of this big change, this shift in the way people moved around was roads. You needed, you needed good quality roads. It really wasn't fun to get into an early car and head out on a horse track. You can't overstate how bad roads were in the early, even 20th century. You know, you'd be fine in town with your Fliver or whatever. Yeah. Fliver? Is that an old car? Yeah. With your, your tin Lizzie? I think a Fliver even was a, was a way of describing a, a, like a original kind of uh, hopped up, souped up horse, uh, horse cart, right? Uh, it had fins and. Yeah, exactly. It sounds very futuristic. So it's two V's in a row. Yeah. Uh, but then as soon as you got outside American cities, the roads basically went away. It was, it was rutted wagon wheels. And, you know, of course in, in rainy weather, it would be unnavigable mud and rivers would rise. And, you know, in the summer it would be dusty and awful and it would take, uh, a month or more to cross the country. Well, if you even could cross the country yeah. I and mean, in that, uh, the idea of a system of roads to cross the country was, it was an idea that followed necessity. People wanted to, um, wanted to see the country in that way. And the, the railroad did connect both sides, but it still felt like terra incognita for most of the Midwest and the Mountain West. The idea that there would be a single network of good roads crossing the country is something we borrowed from other countries, which were much smaller. You know, it's much easier to connect all the big cities of Germany. Right. A country the size of, I don't know, Arizona, smaller. And the, yeah, well, and the Germans were innovative in building a network of roads. But the first real road across the United States, like intentionally conceived of, cross-country road was a road called the Lincoln, Lincoln Highway. Highway, built by Abraham Lincoln himself. The old <laughs> rail splitter was out there with a hatchet. And the Lincoln Highway in most, in a lot of, in a lot of sections still survives. You know, we, we, we celebrate Route 66 because it was a similar kind of cross-country highway, although it doesn't go all the way across America. But it does go to Los Angeles, which was an exciting place and through the desert Southwest. And there was a television show about it. And route 66 became a kind of emblem of that mid-century 57 Chevy wanderlust. Yeah. Plus it's got Satan's number in the name. Sure, so obviously the dark Lord was influencing our culture yeah. in favor of his, his numbered highway. That's why we stopped calling this show the omnibus 666 project. <laughs> Why did we do that? That was I such a weird know. idea. It was weird. Just came to us in a dream. When did the Lincoln Highway uh, open? Like, what's the... So, it, it's it's pre-World War One. So, very early on, there was a recognition that this would be a cool thing and a necessary thing. So, the, the, the road opened in 1913, and it went from New York City to San Francisco, the two bookends of the country. This was at a time when San Francisco was still the largest city on the West yeah, Coast. That's the jumping off point for the Pacific. Right. Uh, before Los Angeles became a megalopolis. And in the future, um, Coos Bay, Oregon. Coos Bay, right, which became the largest city in the Americas uh, in, 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 in your 2065. Era. <laughs> uh, but at first it was like, you know, fire up your putt-putt and try and make it. Um, but as time went on, pretty quickly, the Lincoln Highway was, uh, became like a major arterial of the United States. And one of the things that kind of cemented its reputation or cemented its necessity, I guess, was a very early convoy of military vehicles that made the trip all the way across the United States on the Lincoln Highway, a kind of military convoy. And one of the officers on that trip was Dwight Eisenhower, who was very impressed and very kind of galvanized by this experience. He'd already seen German Autobahns in action. He knew there was something better, right? No, in fact, this came a long time before that. So uh, when Eisenhower was still a colonel, 
before World War II, before his experiences in Europe. Uh, I mean, his experiences in Europe in World War I. Oh, well, in World War I, there, at that point, there was not this network of roads there either. Eisenhower took this convoy across the Lincoln Highway in 1919. So just a few years after the Lincoln Highway was opened, but crucially, immediately after World War I, which was a period where the American military modernized and it was, we sort of saw that we were going to become, the U.S. military was going to provide this maybe a, a more global peacekeeping role than it had prior. And so taking this convoy across the United States this was before Europe had become autobond, um, before there was a, a similar sort of network of roads connecting Europe or even within Germany. Those were innovations that, that came in Europe after this experience. But Eisenhower s took this trip and realized, wow, you can now drive across the United States and you can take tanks and trucks and the whole handbasket. It was not an easy trip, right? They, hundreds of accidents and bridges out and, you know, a very small portion of the convoy that left wherever they started from, New York, Washington, I guess, like yeah. actually arrived in California. Yeah, pretty rough road, but still a single road, one that you could point to and say like, we're still on the Lincoln Highway. Yeah. And this came home to roost later, as you mentioned, like during World War II, Eisenhower in Europe saw the German Autobahn system and realized its power, both as a civilian uh, resource and also as a, a way of m moving military personnel and materiel quickly around the country. And so Eisenhower, during his presidency, advocated for the interstate highway system, uh, which is one that we all now in America use every single ding-dong day. And it was, it was conceived both as a means of transportation and also in the early years of the Cold War as a way of evacuating cities in the event of a nuclear attack, a nuclear attack. Because otherwise, without, <laughs> without the interstate system, people would just stay in the cities. And, and be immolated. And you want to have the disaster movie thing of like roads choked with that's what cars going nowhere. <laughs> yeah, that's what you want In instead. the event of an accident. <laughs> I it's got to look like a zombie movie or what kind of apocalypse is that? As we've seen before, most of the Cold War preparations uh, were all just theater, um, security theater. The, the Eisenhower and the people in, in Washington recognized that there would be no warning, there would be no time. That all of this was just a dream. But it kept people busy building bunkers and so on. You know, you've got all this existential angst. Why not pour it into a nice hobby? When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. And this was an era where the automobile was a symbol not only of freedom, but of this kind of race to the future. Um, this was the dawn of jet travel, of space travel. And we were also, it was, a, it was an era of urban renewal so that a lot of our cities, which had decaying infrastructure, a lot of neighborhoods that, that had not been kept up. There were, during the war, there was a lot of migration of uh, African-Americans from the South to work in the industries of the North. And they populated neighborhoods which were already kind of economically disadvantaged. And then those neighborhoods became vibrant communities that from the outside looked like they were ghettos. And so as 
we sought a brand new future in America. We saw these cities in decline. With problems to fix. Problems to fix yeah. with new technology, n- namely like poured concrete. And so interstates became a way of not only fake preparing for the apocalypse and not only as ways to uh, promote interstate commerce and give people the freedom to drive out to the Californias, but also a way to, quote unquote, renew downtowns and inner cities. Which really means just give people elevated highways to sluice through them without... Well, or to actually demolish whole neighborhoods and dig big trenches and build freeways through them. Uh, And that's really the story of a lot of uh, the cities of the Midwest that later fell into tremendous decline because most of their downtowns were were flattened and turned into freeways. You know, if you think about the Lower East Side in New York and in uh, Brooklyn and Queens, I mean, uh, Robert Moses plowed under like whole neighborhoods. And those were cal- those were calculated decisions by Robert Moses and people like him all over the country they to were. like let's bring the highway through here conveniently right. getting rid of this neighborhood we'd all like to get rid of. And we'll put everyone that lived in that neighborhood in this giant high-rise building made out of poor concrete that we are not going to fund or maintain. So it will just turn <laughs> into like a gulag. But the interstate highway system was an exciting mid-century development and one that America poured a ton of resources into. And here in Seattle, we see the consequences of it every day. I-5 runs right through the the heart of the town. And in building our own I-5, we destroyed all of Japantown, which was already pretty destroyed by the fact that we had (laughs) interned most of the residents of Japantown. I bet it was easy to get that land cheap for some reason. (laughs) Just a few years earlier, we had evacuated that whole part of town. And when the war was over, returning people from Japan, or from, uh, I'm sorry, returning Japanese from the internment camps did not, surprisingly, want to repopulate their neighborhood, but instead saw an opportunity to integrate by a kind of a neighborhood diaspora. There's a neighborhood near me that, um, you know, I always think of as a very different part of town. And yet when I stand at my house and look out over the lake, I can see that really the freeway running through is the only thing that separates this neighborhood from Maple Leaf. They should really just be, it's a single hillside. You should be able to walk up there. Right. And I think of it as a totally different part of town because somebody built an eight-lane freeway through it. Sure. And, and that, I mean, think about that if you were in a really dense neighborhood and all of a sudden there was an eight-lane freeway, they would seem like they were on Mars, yeah. um, even though there you know, maybe used to be a three-minute walk. Some of the earliest freeways uh, and the whole notion of a freeway uh, were built in the state of Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania was, a, was an early adopter, and the Pennsylvania Turnpike was one of the very first toll roads and one of the very first roads that you could get on and and it didn't have at-grade crossings. It had entrances and exits, but once you were on the road, you could travel at speed for a great distance. What we think of as a freeway. And not, a, except except that it's not free. It's a toll road, right? It's a toll road, right. Out and, here in the West, we have freeways because we're toll road resistant. But lots of the interstate highway system in the East, to this day, is still a toll highway. Originally, they were built as private enterprise. Yeah. I mean, they weren't government funded. They were... Um, these for-profit attempts or for, for-profit... I wish I owned a turnpike. I know, wouldn't a that be a... sweet job. You'd just sit and collect the toll. It's just you, you'd have a, a bajillion dollars in quarters. You do get toll roads where the toll is temporary. The toll gets imposed in order to fund the construction of the road, but, but it always has a time limit. Once the bond is paid off, the toll is taken away. In fact, the, the bridge here in Seattle across the, across the lake from the University of Washington to Bellevue was originally the first bridge, I'm sorry, the Warren G. Magnuson Bridge, mm-hmm. was originally a toll road. It cost a nickel. And after they paid off the bond, they took the toll away. Which politically just tends to not happen anymore. Yeah, right? There's right. a lot of inertia. Hey, people are already used to paying this. Nobody's going to complain if it doesn't go away. Once you get a toll going, you want to keep it as long as you can. That's but a good thing. they just rebuilt that bridge and re- reinstituted a toll. So it's a toll bridge again. Um, but the Pennsylvania Turnpike was very successful. In fact, they pioneered a lot of kind of innovative thinking. The original Pennsylvania Turnpike tried to be, tried to have like great sections that were just laser straight because that was how 
you imagined you want to get from one it's place efficient. to another. Yeah, go in a straight line. But what they hard dis- to build, I assume. Well, and what they discovered pretty early on was that if your road had no curves in it, it did not take very long for drivers to become hypnotized. <laughs> and so most of the curves that you see in interstates are put there not just to go around geographical bubbles, uh, hills and valleys and so forth, but they're put there because you need to keep hidden sight lines to keep drivers intrigued. It's video game design. Yeah. Well, that means when we get autonomous cars, we can also just regrade all our highways. Everything the can car just doesn't be need entertainment. Hey, do you know where the word turnpike comes from, by the way? It's what? odd, right? You're not yeah. turning. The whole point of a turnpike is you're not going to turn. I guess turnpike was originally the barrier that would keep people from going on the road. It's a, it's a, it's the pike that would turn oh. at the toll gate. Oh. You know, so it's like a turnstile, basically. A turnstile. And now the whole road is named for the thing that would keep you off the road. What was cool about the Pennsylvania turnpike is that going back to the age of railroads, a lot of the route of the Pennsylvania turnpike was already built through a very, very rough mountainous part of Pennsylvania. It was already built and many, many of the tunnels were already dug by a previous boondoggle. In the 1880s, there was a railroad war between the New York Central Railroad and the Pennsylvania Railroad. People just launching locomotives at each other? Well, it's when you're in Manhattan, right? You there's Penn Station and there's Grand Central Station. Ah, and those were the competing outfits. That's right. Pennsylvania Station was the terminus of the Pennsylvania Railroad and Grand Central was the terminus of New York Central and they don't connect. You have to walk across town. Um, That's funny to this day. And so it's, it was Coke and Pepsi basically. Would they, would they have different destinations? Or different, were, yeah, they covered different territory. And, you know, we see that here in Seattle also, not to make everything have a Seattle parallel, but... We have the King Street Station and we have the Union Station. Now, Union Station across the street from King Street Station is no longer a railroad station. It's now used as a as Paul Allen's place where people have weddings. And it's stuff. a Zeppelin hangar. But originally, they were two railroad stations built across the street from one another. That seems inefficient because it what was. that means is you got miles of railroad track across the street from each other. That's right. I mean, they had different routes and you would use them differently, but they were competing railroads. So the New York Central and the Pennsylvania Railroad were competing with one another. And at some point, the Pennsylvania Railroad bought a smaller railroad that was directly competing against the New York Central Railroad in some other route uh, up around Buffalo. And so no less than William Vanderbilt, capitalist extraordinaire. Railroad tycoon. Who was the New York Central Railroad magnate decided he was so mad at the Pennsylvania Railroad uh, getting up in his business that he was going to build his own competing railroad that mimicked a route that the Pennsylvania Railroad itself took. So he lined up with some other guys you may have heard of, Andrew Carnegie and uh, Henry Clay Frick, two Pittsburgh industrialists, and they proposed this railroad that would go through this really rugged, hard Allegheny route from uh, Philadelphia to Pittsburgh uh, that they were going to call the South Pennsylvania Railroad. And they worked for decades uh, digging these massive tunnels Mm -hmm. through all these mountains. And they all went broke. They did Carnegie, Vanderbilt, Frick, (laughs) they all wound up as hobos around a a can of beans on a barrel fire. J.P. Morgan was involved too. I mean, the whole gang. I love the idea of all these guys like losing their shirts in the same enterprise. As as the enterprise progressed, they realized that it was really expensive and that it was super duper a boondoggle. They were losing money hand over fist. If they opened the railroad, it was not going to, there's no way that it was going to actually ever pay for itself. It was an embarrassment. This actually happened to all the companies that built the London Underground. Like the reason why there's so many different lines on the London Underground are the same reason. A bunch of private companies were like, ooh, hey, we'll build a underground train from, you know. Whitechapel to. King's Cross to Paddington. And this was the future. And so everybody poured all this money into it and immediately became obvious this was not the way to make a fortune. All these companies went under and had to get um, bailed out by public uh, funds. And 
you know, that's why the London Underground is the way it is today. Is that right? It's just a collection of all of these different private things that eventually the city of London came in and said, all right, we'll take everything. Yeah, I, th I think a lot of it did get um, aggregated and right. eventually nationalized. Well, so this was a super big, this uh, railroad was a super big embarrassment. And gradually, as capitalists do, they found a way to write off the debt and they found a way to make it look like this was always their plan. And they they found a way to... They did not become hobos. They didn't lose a penny. No. Damn it. Somebody lost money. It was probably the teacher's union or the old lady's home ended up going bankrupt. Some kind of orphans. But in the meantime, this railroad right-of-way, including uh, half a dozen like pretty great tunnels, just sat fallow until the Pennsylvania Turnpike folks came along and more or less bought it all for a dollar. And so the Pennsylvania Turnpike was routed through these old railroad tunnels and it hit, you know, it was like two birds with one stone. They solved this. They solved how they would get this expressway across the state. Well, that was all well and good until the post-war explosion of automobile traffic. The Pennsylvania Turnpike opened in 1940, right before the war, when people were still uh, motoring around in their DeSotos or their, I don't know what, their Tuckers. Their what the hell were the people driving? Them? Packers. They're, they're Flivvards. Flivvards? <laughs> Flivvards? <laughs> they're Flivvards, which is the best part of the bird. I don't want to get my Flivvards all shaken up. But uh, but by the mid-50s, these railroad tunnels, which which were just one lane each going both ways, you know, one lane traffic headed west, yep. one lane traffic headed east, they were bottlenecks. It's not enough capacity. No. A lot of people wanted to go fishing or they wanted to go up to their Allegheny camp house. And so the turnpike people started realizing they needed to bypass some of these tunnels. There were new technologies that allowed them to widen the roads. And this was also the beginning then of the Interstate Highway Commission. So as the interstate system started to get plotted out, uh, a lot of these roads that already existed, the Lincoln Highway, for instance, Route 66, Highway 40, the Pennsylvania Turnpike, yeah, the Ohio Turnpike. Northeastern Turnpikes. It was pretty generally understood that it didn't make sense to build an interstate right next to the Pennsylvania Turnpike. We're not 1890s railroad wars anymore. That's right. Uh, it seems like in a lot of cases, this stuff should overlap. And in many cases, it does. If you're trying to follow the route of Route 66, you're going to find that a lot of it is just I-10 and um, other interstates that it seemed like uh, in the most, in most cases, this was the best route. They'd already figured out the best route. The difference being that Route 66 or uh, Highway 40 went at grade level. They went through main streets. They were where the motels were and the restaurants. They had stoplights on. There were traffic lights. You'd have to stop for cross traffic every block in town, right? Right, because the idea was that these were, I mean, Lincoln Highway was just a road. It was, and people built whole towns around the Lincoln Highway. It was a major advantage if the highway went through your town. And the era of motels the original motels were all built around these at-grade streets. But when you're building a freeway, you need to bypass those towns. And so, for instance, the surviving sections of Route 66 are ones where you get off the freeway, drive over to the little spur road. It's like a little belt that actually goes through town. And yeah, and, and the, often there will be signs on the highway begging you to, to take oh, that. Please come down and go to our Kentucky Fried Chicken. It will take a little longer, but it'll be so worth your while. So how the interstates got built really affected the how these little towns economically and culturally, like, did they survive? Did the road bypass them in such a way that uh, that traffic was routed around them and, and never, if, if there wasn't an exit at your town, that, this happened to a lot of little towns. The freeway just went by. There wasn't a way off. And even if there was a way off, I guess within 30 or 40 years, it would lead to a culture of, um, you know, Walmart coming through town and planning itself by the highway, obviously, and not in the old downtown. And that's it's the nail off. in the coffin for everybody downtown. Are you old enough to remember a time in your uh, road tripping when these little towns were still, 
you would pull off the road and actually go to a little restaurant in town, little mom's restaurant, instead of pulling off no, and going to it a would Chick-fil-A? All, it would all be the Golden Arches, which were all built right by the interstate. Because we were awful kids and we just wanted the brand we knew. You know, We didn't want mom's. Who knows what you would get there? We wanted McNuggets. My first real you know, solo trip across the U.S., which we've talked about before on the freight hopping episode and other, other times, in 1986, it was right at the cusp of this transition so that there were fast food restaurants, there were Denny's, but there also still were those last vestiges of small town America hanging on. Hanging on against Dairy Queen. And it was during you know that first 10 years of hitchhiking and traveling that I saw the rise of the Howard, not the Howard Johnsons, they were there for a long time, but the Motel 6s and the Super 8s and the ubiquity of of fast food to the point that the town was obscured. Even if the town was right there, visible from the road, you couldn't see it anymore for the forest. Sure. Of- it's very ugly because they built those giant, you know, a big spinning six on a pole and then a golden arches on a pole and then a Colonel Sanders bucket on a pole. Even the signs on poles were fairly recent. Yeah. I mean, if you think about the past 30 years as being fairly recent, um, I remember the first time I saw a McDonald's sign on a tall pole. I was like, whoa, you can see that from like miles away. Whoa, that's amazing. But you still liked the pathos of the that's awful of the old little cafes and diners? Well, I uh, I have to say, like in the eighties, you could still go into the, some of these places and the and find restaurants where the menu was just it was a chalkboard, or the menu was ham, roast beef, turkey, soup. Like those are all the four food groups, right? You there. know, like they in the morning they would roast a turkey and roast a ham, and you know the food was was really simple and really good and minimally processed. And I remember probably as a 18 year old, 19 year old feeling like this food was not as good as a Wendy's double cheese and a frosty. Yeah, that was my problem. But if you were, if this was what you were forced to do, you, you did it. And, and now God, you know, I miss it. So within the state of Pennsylvania, it was clear that the Lincoln highway was going to have to, and the Pennsylvania turnpike, they were going to have to surrender some of their turf to the interstates. And the interstates had, a reluctance to tolling. Uh, there are a lot of roads in the East that have tolls, and there are roads in the Midwest that are tolled, uh, that are sort of grandfathered in. But the the interstate highway system was meant to be free. It was against tolls. Yeah, freeways are the future. And so as they built it, they didn't want to force people onto toll roads. They wanted, if you were on an interstate and it was kind of overlapping a toll road, there needed to be a, an opportunity. There, you, you needed a way out. You needed a way to opt out as they built the freeways. They wanted it to be a system, right, where you weren't just funneled mm-hmm. into someone's private enterprise. And Well, plus the, the, it would be a whole new revenue-sharing nightmare. That turnpike money went to the state, right, right whatever right. state agency is administering that. So, And for whatever reason during that time, they didn't just nationalize the toll roads, yeah. which it seems like – Depending on what your politics were at any given point in the last hundred years, uh, that could have been – I mean, it seems like maybe Roosevelt, if he had been building the uh, interstate highway system, he would have just nationalized the toll roads. Beautiful murals on the side of everything. You could have made the argument. But in the case of the Pennsylvania Turnpike, they did not. They knew that some of the freeway was going to have to overlap it. And in fact, Interstate 76 – and Interstate 70 were going to overlap one another. They were going to share a section of 30 miles or 50 miles or some number of miles through the center of Pennsylvania because this is rough Allegheny Mountain territory. And I don't, it, I don't know that part of Pennsylvania at all. Is there really nothing, not much there? I mean, the people who live in central Pennsylvania will get mad that you and I say that the area between Altoona Pennsylvania and Frederick, Maryland is not really, there's not a ton going on. But it's pretty clear on a map that there is not a ton going on. It's, uh, yeah, there's not a ton going on. It's If Altoona is your big regional city, right? it's a, it's a slow day. 
But this is a real crossroads, right? You've got Washington, D.C. down there. You've got Pittsburgh. You've got Philadelphia. People need to move through this area. Sure. I mean, it's everything between the big cities of Ohio and western Pennsylvania. Right. Columbus, and, and, Cleveland. And every, all the big eastern seaboard cities on the east side. And we in the interstate highway system, there are a lot of instances where I-90 and I-94 – will share a, a roadway for hundreds of miles. It's always confusing. You're like, wait, am I on I-90 or I-94? Right. You have to realize that the highways are not the roads. They are a kind of a, a mental construct that are running atop the roads in your thought space. <laughs> and that, you know, the real I-90 was the friends we made along the way. And I-76 I goes from Cleveland or Akron all the way down to, it goes to Philadelphia. I-70 goes from Columbus to Baltimore. But they spend this time together right here in this section. And Highway 30 and the Turnpike, they all come together in the town of Breezewood, Pennsylvania. We finally mention Breezewood, which has kind of a fake sounding name, Breezewood. Seems like the setting for a soap or something. Well, and Breezewood is, um, Breezewood has a long history as a crossroads. This was a place where if you were trying to get from one side of Pennsylvania to the other, you were going to have to go through this. You're going to get funneled down into Breezewood even before there was a Breezewood. And Breezewood is an interesting little, I mean, let me retract that. Breezewood itself isn't really that interesting. It's just a place with a lot of Kentucky Fried Chickens. It's not even incorporated. It's a census-designated place. Yeah, there were some towns around it, and I think maybe there was a <laughs> something as simple as a service station called like the Breezewood 76. Yeah. And people started calling that Corner Breezewood. That's why it sounds like a product name. It actually probably was. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. Uh, but Breezewood is this place that, you know, when they tried to build the, the railroad through there, it went right through this little corner. And then the turnpike came and then the or the Lincoln Highway came. And there's a there's a whole section of the Pennsylvania Turnpike which was made obsolete by the straightening of these roads during the early part of the um, post-war period that's called the Abandoned Pennsylvania Turnpike, which is like a rails-to-trails bike zone, like a super freaky... Is it still... It's still paved? Yeah, Whatever it was, four-lane highway? Yeah, for a while, I think one of the big three automakers used it as a place to test cars. Like, they would get cars going and pull up their e-brakes or whatever. But you can go out and it's at your own risk, I guess, because it's not maintained. But you can go out and ride your bike through these. It should be for shooting commercials. Tunnels. There should be, like, fake roads just for car companies. To make like roads. The new Hyundai Sonata. I bet it gets used in zombie movies all the time. <laughs> or if it doesn't, it should. If you're making a The Road... You should absolutely go and out And the there. state should provide its own zombies there. So the, you know, as a utility, like, so every film company is not bringing in its own zombies. They're already there. Pennsylvania definitely has plenty of zombies. Anyway, as we know here in Seattle, it took a long time to build the interstate highway system. It started in the mid fifties. Longer than it was supposed to, right? Yeah. It wasn't the idea like, this will be done in a matter of years, less than a decade, we should have this knocked out. And the original plan didn't get finished until... I don't even know. It's shocking. Well, yeah, the original plan was still, people were still working on it into the 80s. In fact, right here in our own Northwest, 
the town of Wallace, Idaho. Do you remember? Did you ever go through Wallace, Idaho? Yeah. Where is Wallace? So until even, even when I was in college, if you were on I-90 headed east from Washington, uh, through the mountains of Idaho, up there in uh, Anaconda territory, like Silver Idaho land, there was a little town of Wallace, which was situated deep in a river ravine. And the old highway, the like Highway 10, was like Route 66. It just went right through the main street of, of Wallace. Mm-hmm. But if you were going to build an interstate through there, there wasn't another place to put it except right over the town of Wallace, which was a super quaint little like cowboy Western town on the, on the banks of a river in a steep sided Valley. And so the townspeople of Wallace declared themselves a national historical city and succeeded in getting their city designated. Just to avoid some big concrete viaduct. Well, no, the, the road would have, just wiped out the town. It would have been one of those situations where yeah. the necessity of the freeway. The town is the same with this highway that's going to replace it. And so all through the 80s, you would be on I-90 headed east and all of a sudden there would be some signs and the roadway would start to change and then you would be on a road, a normal road, and then you would come to a stoplight. The one stoplight in Wallace on the on interstate, I-90, on I ninety, on the interstate which highway, should be taking you from Seattle to Boston, right? And you would go, you'd wait for the stoplight to change, you'd putter through Wallace, go past the restaurant that had ham and turkey and roast beef, and then the road would, on the other side of Wallace, would start to widen, and pretty soon you'd be on a freeway. I assume you'd see the speed limits change, right? Oh, yeah. Would, would yeah. they would they gradually throttle like you down? 55, like fifty five, forty five, thirty, twenty. It's like a backwards auction. It was really hilarious and. And it was a wonderful little town, a wonderful break. But in the subsequent years, they uh, blasted a freeway route up the mountainside so that when you're in Wallace, you do you can now look up and you, the freeway is going around the town kind of like carved out of the side of the See, mountain. That seems like probably crazy expenditure per mile just to get this idea that we have these roads that do not have stoplights. Yeah, it was a ton of money and a, and a lot of extra engineering, but Wallace survives to this day. You can visit it and go buy, I'm sure, some fool's gold in a poke. <laughs> I see that in 1991, the, uh, when the bypass was complete, the town held a funeral for their stoplight, <laughs> which, was, which was, you know, the, that was the last stoplight on an actual transcontinental Interstate, and that was 1991. 91. So yeah, the, the the 1956 Federal Highway Project finally ended with that viaduct, and then uh, and then a 1992 section through these Colorado canyons that required a lot of uh, bridge and tunnel work. That again, you know, probably millions of dollars per inch of highway. Uh, so yeah, Eisenhower did not live to see it by uh, about <laughs> 25 years. Yeah. But for the most part, the, the interstate highway system was up and running by the mid-60s. Yes, there were just these little gaps. But Breezewood, Pennsylvania is a unique case. And it's a case where this combination of different roads and different jurisdictions resulted in a situation where as they were building the freeway, the administering organization, the the Federal Highway Administration, had a because of the Federal Aid Highway Act, which paid for a lot of this road building, yeah. had a stipulation that you couldn't collect tolls on roads built with these funds forever, right? You could collect tolls in certain circumstances. But to build this road with funds from the Federal Aid Highway Act, the Pennsylvania Turnpike would have had to agree to stop collecting tolls, which, as you said earlier, the state of Pennsylvania had no interest in in agreeing to. Mm-hmm. And so as they were building the interchange, they built it in such a way that in order to make the transition from uh, the new newly constructed highway and the other roads, road. you had to get off the road and go down into the unincorporated gas station named town of Breezewood, Pennsylvania, and then get on an on-ramp to whichever road it was you were continuing on. A direct direct connection was uh, 
regulatorily impossible. Yeah, they were able to use the Federal Highway Act funds, but they needed to do this little switchamaroo, a little sleight of hand. And at the time, because the freeway system was still piecemeal, it didn't seem that unusual. There were plenty of instances where freeways just sort of ended somewhere and all of a sudden you were on surface streets because the system hadn't connected itself into the like seamless yeah. kind of organism it is now. But now that we have this seamless circulatory system, it, it, I'm sure Breezewood feels very odd if you're driving through that part of Pennsylvania. Well, so once certain regulations had been um, relaxed and certain, you know, and the, and the system had coalesced, Breezewood did seem very unusual. And over the course of time, became the only place in the entire interstate highway system where you were, for some portion of your trip, routed down to surface streets and to a stoplight. So you just, you feel like you're still on the highway. And then all of a sudden... You have nowhere to go except through the town of Breezeway. There's a red light in front of you. The only other place that you encounter a light is when you're entering the Holland Tunnel on your way into New York City. But I don't consider... It's pretty clear that the interstate ends there at the Holland Tunnel, whether or not it's designated through the tunnel or not. That doesn't feel like a situation where you're all of a sudden on a surface street. But um, but in the middle of nowhere. But out here in Breezewood, Pennsylvania. And so, so once it was possible to, with federal funding and with the various ways, uh, the ways and the means, to build an interchange there, the residents of Breezewood and the government of Pennsylvania did not see any compelling reason why they would want to spend their time, money, and frustration on building this. Well, sure. If you're the franchisee who owns the Exxon station or the uh, – what do they have out there? The Perkins yeah. or the Car- – <laughs> is that Carl's Jr. or Hardee's? What part of the country is? that's Hardee's, right? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. So you have no interest in suddenly diverting all your traffic away from your business? Not at all. So they have consistently... That traffic light spits out money to them. It does. And, and you know, it, it retains this kind of special, special status, special circumstance to those roads and to that little... I, it's really just four or five blocks long, uh, Breezewood. It's only a few hundred people that live there, I think. Really crammed with little tourist traps. I mean... Because they got you. Yeah, they got you. You're sitting at that light whether you like it or not. I wrote a, when I wrote my book about different kinds of map nerds, I hung out with like road geeks who are people who are obsessed with the uh, interstate highway system. And uh, I'm sure part of it is the appeal of the open road, but part of it is they just like the systematization of it. The fact that we've kind of classified America into these numbered roads. And so these people do not like when anything is off standard or off model in any way. Right. You know, they get very angry about this. Uh, there's this Pennsylvania kind of um, pork laden congressman named Bud Schuster who uh, managed to get money for a new highway through Altoona and he wanted it signed Interstate 99 because that would be the highest one. That would be the best one. Sure. And they were very angry because it's between 70, I-79 and I-81. You can't know? have 99 in there. It's out of order. I don't know what odd number there is between 79 and 81. I don't know what they would have chosen, but that cannot be Interstate 99. And so people like this who are very angry about little uh, oddities in the system like this, they are appalled by Breezewood. It's really, you know, like a stain of bird poop on the Mona Lisa to them. But yeah. The interstate highway system... Well, it's one leaky pipe in a, in an entire, you know, a beautiful. Everything else just as designed. And yet, this thing is with Pennsylvania. And by by something as lame as like commerce, local gas station owners preventing me from having my beautiful nation of of eight lane highway. What's funny is that uh, in our own time, our own president, Donald Trump. Not my president, John. (laughs) Not your typical American. Uh, Trump, as of February of 2018, has reopened the idea of tolls on interstate highways as a, as a method of paying for infrastructure repair. Because as we've seen in the United States, we have not budgeted 
money to repair these freeways, these beautiful uh, freeways we've built. And as a result, our metaphorically collapsing civilization is also literally collapsing, which seems a little on the nose. Right. Bridges are falling down. Roads are falling down. Are crashing apart. So this is, uh, Trump's plan is meeting with a lot of resistance because, of course, it involves like, Lots of privatizing too, so the the toll money is going to come out of. <laughs> so there's plenty of money to be made here <laughs> by all the right people. I mean, I'm not against the idea of tolls in general. It does seem very fair to me in a way that the exact number of people, depending on the exact time amount of time they spend on the the road or the bridge or whatever, it's a flat tax. Are paying proportionate to that, you know? So it's going to it's just in a way it's going to the right users. But yes, it is a flat tax, which means. You know, disadvantaged people who have to use that road as much as the rich people, you know, they're they're paying a larger percentage of their income for the same privilege. And it takes away kind of the utopian dream of the interstate highway system, which is like it's a magical gift that has been provided for us and by all of us. And uh, here it is for all to enjoy. You know, so uh, uh, all uh, of us. As if it was the national park system or something. And I don't well, like, I don't like the idea of toll gates on it. Although, you know, one of the biggest uh, opponents of tolls on highways is maybe predictably the interstate trucking associations who feel like they pay a disproportionate share of the maintenance of the roads, although, of course, they, they probably do as, they uh, do as much damage. A lot of wear and tear. Yeah, a lot of wear and tear. What does that mean? We're going to see consumer prices go up if uh, all the interstate highway system becomes tolled? Your well, peanut the, butter will suddenly be seven more cents a jar? When we talk about autonomous cars, this is a question that isn't really being addressed by governments yet, which is that the autonomous car transition is going to be effectively a privatization of transportation because your autonomous car companies are going to be just a handful, you know, who's working on it now? Uber, Google, Apple, uh, Tesla. I mean, you can name everybody that's in the autonomous car space and they aren't going to, uh, you know, Elon Musk notwithstanding, they're probably not going to make all of that technology public domain. And so then you're going to have a situation where the roads are being paid for by taxes, but they're only being used by these this very small handful of for-profit companies because in a world of autonomous cars, you're not going to be able to just get on the road in your jalopy and drive wherever you want. Think of all the trouble you'd make. Yeah, the tempo is going to go way, way up. You won't be able to to drive your car. And when trucking becomes autonomous and all those truck drivers are out of work, it's going to be trucking's going to be in the hands of a very few companies too. So then the question is, who does pay for the roads? Are they a public service that we're providing these five for-profit companies? How do poor people get from place to place? So it's all a, a new set of regulatory tangles and tax questions, uh, how we're going to, all, all these little tourist traps aren't going to fulfill the same functions because people aren't going to be wandering aimlessly looking for a Denny's. They're going to set their coordinates and presumably turn the Turn the windshields to black and watch <laughs> Toy Story and and uh, Pixar's cars. The car is going to produce its own McNuggets for you. Right. There's going to be a McNugget box in the dash. You're not going to pull over and buy Tanzanite at a roadside stand. All the little Breezewoods uh, will be gone. Breezewood, by the way, is a common noun among these war- road geek people. They, they'll say, oh, this is a Breezewood, which is some little hang up that's, that's choking what should be a very efficient highway, no matter whether it's in Breezewood, Pennsylvania or not. That's the most. This is now breezewood. The most elegant insult I think I've ever heard. What a breezewood! And that concludes Breezewood, Pennsylvania, entry one five three dot jg zero five zero six, certificate number three one four two four, in the omnibus. Now, futurelings, we hope that uh, these four companies, Apple, Google, Tesla, and so forth, have not taken over social media in your lifetime the way they appear to have have their sights set on all the other infrastructure. We hope social media does not exist at all. But in our time period, we were perhaps the last people to enjoy it. Uh, John and I are at Omnibus Project on any social media platform you can think of. 
We're also at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick individually uh, on Twitter and, in his case, Instagram. Not so much Twitter anymore. I'm on Twitter more and more all the time. I, I, I thought, more and more all the time. I thought for By a, the time you hear this, John will be on Twitter 100% of the time. 110%. It's ramping 10, up. Nothing but, nothing but growth. Uh, you know, it's one of those where you can, uh, you can always split something in half to eternity. I will, as I get closer and closer to 100% of the time, I will continue to be on there more and more, but the amount I'm on there will just be fractionally more. Soon there will be like a tiny fraction of a pixel on your phone screen that is something besides Twitter. Uh, we are also on, speaking of evil conglomerates taking mm. over the future, the Futurelinks fan uh, page on Facebook, Facebook is a delightful place to hang out. On the Facebook. On the Facebook. As the Faces book. It used to be called when it was for ranking Ivy League girls in their dorms and creepily stalking them. Facebook is awful and remains awful, but when they are in charge of the autonomous cars, all I will say about them is praiseful. <laughs> is that right? Because I want the car to come pick me up and take me where I'm going. My Amazon credit rating, I'm going to really meticulously manage it because I do not want to sit and wait while I get a spinning beach ball. Can you imagine an interstate highway system run by and for Facebook? It would have <sighs> it would have all the efficiencies and user-friendliness of their site. <laughs> <laughs> It's complicated. Uh, you could also send us digital communications in our era at our address, theomnibusproject at gmail.com. Gmail again, soon to own the Goog. federal highway system. The Googs. The Googsters. Uh, if people had physical artifacts to share with us, they could actually do so with a, you know, a government agency-like outfit, the U.S. Postal Service. Uh, I guess it's a private enterprise now in a way. Sure but it, it at least has some kind of nationalized status. They will deliver stuff to John and myself at the Omnibus Project, P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we're pretty sure that these are the end times. There's no way for us to know, of course, because we're still able to get gas and fried chicken. It's all the people who can't get gas and fried chicken in the future that know what's going to happen. That's the one commodity they have that we don't. They have knowledge. We have gas and fried chicken. The day that I go into the store and cannot get peanut M&Ms anymore, it will be the sign that there's no going back. Have you noticed in that one movie where everyone has to be quiet um, because of the monsters? I think it was called the monsters who made you be quiet. Be quiet because of the monsters. Yeah, it's called be quiet because of the monsters. Yeah. Have you noticed that the movie starts, did you see the movie? No. It starts in a grocery store and everything has been stripped from the shelves except for like Doritos. Whoa. Like all the crunchy, crinkly products oh, sure. are still there <laughs> because you will you will die immediately. So peanut M&Ms might actually still be on shelves. They, they are the crunchiest of the M&M family. That's true. I bet you I could eat a peanut M&M without anybody hearing me. You have to have the kind of um, delayed gratification that allows you to suck your M&M right down to the peanut if you actually have the, the kind of brain that has to crunch down on it. Are you talking about World War Z? <laughs> no. Because you had to be quiet because of them too, right? Is that true? I don't remember. In zombie movies in general, you kind of have to be quiet. It seems yeah. like zombies react to noise. Yeah. No, this is the creatures that they can't see. They're oh. blind, so you're invisible to them as long as you're um, either being very quiet, so they have to like carpet their gravel driveway, or if you're someplace with a lot of white noise, like uh, they go to waterfalls to have sex. Oh. Hey, 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 I'm going to start doing that. <laughs> Even without the monsters. Anyway, uh, we hope and pray that this uh, monster catastrophe we fear may never come. Although, waterfall sex maybe is a life hack. There's a silver lining. Uh, if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if the monsters allow, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.